The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right, let's, before we begin and and continue to look at Psalm 23, please, let's pray. God, I don't even know what to say. You alone are great. And to stand here and, and to share your word, God, is a, is a privilege and a burden beyond what I ever imagined. And so I ask in this time that it, it wouldn't be me. Lord, please don't let it be me up here. Please let these be your words, God. Please let this be a time that is about you and you alone, that is not about the baggage we bring or or what we carry, that is not about the person who stands up front or the person we sit next to. God, please let this be a time that is about you. Let this be a time that is a celebration of how great you are. Let these be your words. Fill us with your heart. Let this be a church that is a tidal wave crashing against this town for you. We give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs> oh man, I'm, uh, what's my buzzword? I'm excited. So we've been going through Psalm 23, right? Last week we looked at... Um, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And we looked at this truth that in David's region and in David's time, pastures for sheep didn't occur naturally. This wasn't something that was just common and widespread, that a shepherd in that time would have had to very intentionally craft and make a pasture for the flock to stay in and to thrive in. And so we asked ourselves, for the Christian, then, what is that pasture? If if God is our shepherd, if we are in God's flock, where are we meant to abide? And we looked at the truth found woven throughout Scripture that we are meant to be yoked to, we are meant to stay firmly affixed to the person of Christ. That is our pasture. That is where God has intended for us to be following in His footsteps, not so that we can eke out an existence, but so that we can thrive That is the pasture that God as our shepherd has made for us. And then we looked at, okay, what happens when we abide in this pasture? What happens when we stay in this pasture, in these these quiet meadows, these still waters? What does God do? He restores my soul. And we looked at that word restoration, how it means to halt the current direction and to return to how things are meant to be. To stop going this way and to return to our originally intended state. And again, we looked at that truth throughout Scripture that God promises restoration and renewal and refreshing. And what? What does He restore? He restores our soul. 
the very essence of who we are, our passions, our convictions, our desires, our appetites, the things we crave. And we asked ourselves the very hard question, do I crave God? Is my soul, is my passion, is my appetite, is the very essence of who I am, is it given to pursuing Christ? Or have I gotten so distracted, right? I talked about how easily the sheep abandon their pasture. How they get distracted or they panic or they see an enemy or a threat and they run. And so we've asked, have I allowed myself to leave the pasture God has tended for me? And that's why my soul feels so weary and so exhausted. And this week we're going to continue. We're going to look at, He leads me along paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Because just here's something else interesting I learned about sheep. Just like sheep will very easily leave that pasture, even if a shepherd could get his sheep to stay in the pasture, sheep still found a way to mess it up. Right? Sheep would walk. Because keep in mind, a pasture, when I say a pasture, I'm not talking about you know, a space this big. Like this is a nice little pasture that could be your backyard. This is a massive, sprawling, irrigated, carefully constructed landscape. This is, a, this is a big area, right? So even if sheep were somehow able to stay in their pasture and not get distracted or panic, they would walk the exact same path over and over and over and over again until it became a rut, until it became a gully, until it became a ravine. And it would change the landscaping, and it would change the water flow, and it would lead to soil erosion, and it would damage the pasture. And they would walk that exact same rut and that exact same path to the exact same part of the pasture, ignoring everything else, to return and overgraze that one section. And they would eat the grass down till they had ruined the roots, and they had ruined the soil, and they had destroyed the pasture through their rut and through their overgrazing. So a good shepherd in that time would have been mindful of this. And a good shepherd, remember we looked at Philip Keller last week, said that the, the well-being of a flock was entirely dependent on the care afforded them by their shepherd. So an attentive shepherd, a responsible shepherd, would notice his flock's behaviors and he would constantly and consistently be leading them in new paths. He would be leading them in different paths so that they couldn't stay stuck in that rut that they would choose to without even thinking about the consequences. He would lead them in new paths that were the right paths to get the fullness of the pasture. That's what David is getting at here when he says he leads me in paths of righteousness. And just like in week one when we looked at Yahweh as my shepherd and I asked, are we surrendered to Yahweh? The question is, okay, if God is leading, am I following if God is leading me along certain paths, am I following those paths? Well, Sam, it would be helpful if we knew what those paths were. I agree. It would be very helpful if we knew. If God is leading, there's the implication that he's given us instructions and he's given us directions, right? You can't lead if you just say, hey, leading, inquire, leading requires direction. So, Sam, what is that direction? I, I hear about listening to God, but I don't know if I hear his words. We have His words. When we look at God leading us, guys, this is not just some book. This is not just some compilation of a couple things that random people jotted down in their free time. Scripture tells us this is the Word of God. You want to hear God? Open your Bible. I mean, these are the words of God. We want direction from God? Open your Bible. 
We want guidance and leadership from God? Open your Bible. It breaks my heart when I talk to people and they say, I don't know what to do. Okay, what did Scripture say? I don't know. That's why I came to you. Why would you ever come to me instead of going to the Bible? This is God's leadership and direction. When it says He leads us in paths of righteousness, He has given us an analogy I've used before, and it's imperfect as all analogies are when you're trying to wrap your mind around the infinite being of God. But an analogy I've used before is God has given us the answer key to the test, and we try and take the test without it. Right? If you're a teacher and you gave your students the answers to the test, and then they were like, hey, I couldn't figure out number three, well, I, I gave you the answers. I gave you the direction. I gave you the guidance. I gave you the leadership. Submit to it. And we see this throughout Scripture. Last week, last week I referenced John 15, 1 through 11. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me. Did you catch, did anyone happen to keep reading John 15 this week? And did you catch what Jesus said within those words about abiding in him? John 15, verse 7 and verse 10. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. And then in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Say, I'm abiding in Christ is great, but how do I do it? Let my words abide in you. Let my commands be fixed to your life. Let my words be a part of who you are in the very essence of your being. Abide in my words. We see this in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 11, verse 1 and verse 18. You shall therefore love the Lord your... Verse 1 is not God talking, it's Moses. And then verse 18 is God's voice. Verse 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Then now God, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It goes on to say, put them on the doorposts of your home, put them on your forehead, so that when you go in, when you come out in every part of your day, my word is with you. Bind this to you. Make this a part of who you are. I mean, do we stop and consider, is God's word a part of who I am? Or is it that book that on Sunday morning I'm scrambling to find on some shelf in my house? Or is it a part of who I am? Is it bound to me? I can't leave my house without it going with me because it is tied to the essence of my being. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And I've, I've said this time and time again, and I will keep saying this. Because we've turned meditation into, you know, deep breathing and empty your mind. No, the original meditation, this true meditation, is you focus on nothing but. Meditate on it day and night. Can we truthfully say we meditate on God's Word day and night? Whatever I'm doing, I am meditating on God's Word. Because this is a part of my minute-by-minute -minute life. Because it is essential to who I am. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And in Hebrews 10, 15 to 16, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Is God's word engraved on your mind? Is God's word written on your heart? Is it etched into the very being of who you are so that every thought is written in God's Word? 
Your heart, your desires, your life is engraved with God's word. And perhaps most simply put, we look at all these verses, we look at the same truth. Perhaps most simply put, let's turn back to David. In Psalm 119, David wrote this. 119.105 Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. If you're somewhere and it's dark, what's your first inclination? Nowadays, it's to pull out our cell phone and open the flashlight, right? If you're trying to navigate somewhere and you can't see where you're going, you can't see what's ahead of you, your immediate reaction is, I'm going to need some light. Let's take Psalm 119.105 literally. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Because this life gets dark. This life gets confusing. This life brings us to places where we don't know what's ahead, and I don't know if I should step or not. So my question is, when we're at those places, wondering, God, where am I supposed to go? Why won't you lead me? My question is, do we use his word to light our path? When we don't know what to do, do we know, all right, what's God's word say? Is his word a lamp to my feet? Does his word show me, oh, you can step here. Oh, don't step there. This is the path you should take. This is the direction you should go in. God promises to lead us. David begins this. He says, he leads me. And so if you're questioning, where is this leadership? I cannot overemphasize this enough. I want you and I am talking to you, you literally, you specifically, if you're like, ah, oh, sometimes Sam is talking to the corporate you. No, right now I am talking to the individual you. I want you to be someone who intimately, deeply, personally, passionately knows God's word. And I'm not perfect at this. I'm not. I want to be better. I want to know this more. But I am aggressively, intentionally pursuing it. Because it is absolute folly to think that I will get through life without knowing God's word, without it being bound to my heart, without it being an essential part of my life. And it is my desire, it is my burden that this is a church of people who know God's word. Because how does God lead us? Yes, he brings people into our lives. Yes, I have been brought to this church for leadership for this time. I should never be your first option. I should never be your first answer. God must always be your first choice for leadership. Know His Word. Let Him lead you. Please, please hear me on this. Because as we know God's Word, as we internalize it, as it becomes part of who we are, what happens? Where does He lead us? He leads us along paths of righteousness. And righteousness, that's a, that's a big word. That's a big concept, right? And it's complex. And we're going to probably wind up, I'm going to expand this series by a week to really look at righteousness. But quickly, righteousness is an attribute of God. It's one of his characteristics. God is righteous. It is also the truth that God and God alone is the standard of what is right. So righteousness then, to put it simply, righteousness is a life lived rightly according to God's standard. That's what righteousness is. So when it says he leads me in paths of righteousness, David is saying God leads me along the correct way. God is the standard for what is right and that is how he leads me. Right? He's not leading me down paths of ease. He's not leading me paths of 
convenience. These aren't paths that are promised to never interrupt your schedule. These aren't paths that won't require anything of you. David doesn't write any of that. He says, he leads me down paths of righteousness. And why? And this, this to me is kind of the most confusing, not confusing, but the section that really makes you kind of sit up and say, huh? Why does he lead us down paths of righteousness? For his name's sake. Because absolutely nothing in this life is about us. This isn't about me. This isn't about you. This isn't about us as a body. Every single aspect of this life is about God and about God's glory. And we must know that. We must believe that. We must live that truth out every day. That everything is for His name's sake. Listen to these words in Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 36, 22 to 27. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. That's why it's for his name's sake. So that he will be known to the nations as the Lord. Because it's about him and his glory. And we've made it about us. And it must be about him. It is not for Israel's sake that I act, says the Lord. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Listen to this last phrase. As David talks about, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Listen to this last phrase. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Why? Because it's about his name's sake that he is known to be Lord among the nations. We also see this in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. For I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So if God has promised to lead us in paths of righteousness, if he has promised to bring us to the good of life, and he doesn't, then he is no longer God. But what he says there in Isaiah is that what I have promised will come to pass. And what I have said, I will do. I have purposed this and I shall do it. That's why it's for his name's sake. To demonstrate that he is Lord and that he alone is Lord, that there is no other before him. He says, who is God besides me? That is why this is about his name's sake. And the conclusion that I come to, if this is about his name's sake, there is only one proper response, and that is humility. 
I'm gonna ask some tough questions in this next section. I've said this before, but I want you to hear this. I want you to know it. We were talking about it as elders before the service. I'm not gonna ask you guys any question that I haven't asked myself every single day this week. And every single day that I'm awake. The questions that I ask in these sermons, these aren't questions that I'm like, man, I hope they figure it out. These are questions that God has made me ask myself. They're hard questions. But when I look at the facts, when I look at the truth that all of this is for God's glory, I arrive at one inescapable conclusion. My life must be defined by humility. And again, we see this throughout Scripture. We see this in Luke 18, Jesus speaking. 18, 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Isn't it interesting that in this example, Jesus uses religion and the people that the Jews would have looked down on the most? He uses the epitome of good Jew versus the absolute worst. Those are the two people that Jesus uses. He says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We see this in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. He goes through everything. The thing you're tempted to boast in, don't. Don't boast in that. What should you boast in? But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. There's righteousness again in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Don't boast in what you want to boast in. Boast in this, that you know me and you understand me. Can I say of my own life, I know and I understand God. I know his heart. I know his commands. I know his statues. I know what he says. I know the direction he gives. And that is where my identity lies. Can I say that about myself? Can you? We also see this in Romans. Romans 11, 33 to 36. And this, listen to these words. Listen to this description of God with the idea of humility. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This ties back to what we looked at with contentment, where we think we deserve things. I deserve this. I'm owed this. What's written here? Really? What have you given to God that he's in debt to you? Sam, what have you done that God owes you one? Has God ever called me up and said, hey, Sam, I need your advice on this? But I allow my ego 
to think this. I allow my ego to say, well, I've, I've given this to God, so yeah, he's, it's my turn. He owes me at this point. I allow my ego to think that. And these words remind me, in verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's not about me. I have to be insane to read those words and think that any of this is about me. This is all about God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. The Christian life must be defined by humility. Because if we're claiming to know the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the one who spoke this into existence, if I'm claiming to know him and to really know who he is, there can't be any room to think that this is about me. I mean, how can I listen to this description of God and think, yeah, but I'm still a pretty big deal. There's still a, a good bit that's owed me or that's because of how awesome I am. I, I play some pretty significant role. No, this is all about God. This church is about God. Your life is about God. Every single thing is through Him and for Him and by Him for His glory. We must be people of humility. And how? Because I'm guessing I'm not shocked any of you, right? Hand up as if this is the first time you've ever heard the word humility. No. I didn't say anything mind-blowing. But how do we get humility? That's the question. How do we grow in it? Listen to what Oswald Chambers describes humility as. He says, It is not an ideal. It is the unconscious result of living in right relationship to God. Paths of righteousness. Living in right relationship to God. Centered in Him. The conscious eye of a humble person is not on his service, but on his savor, Savior. We will be humble if the center of our affection is God's honor. I've been asking myself daily, is the center of my affection God's honor? Is my affection entirely focused on God's honor and God's glory? Because I want to be a humble person, but it's not natural. So when you look at Oswald Chambers, I think it's a great description. I think it's a great definition of humility. And the first thing we see, how do we grow in humility? Make God the center of your affection. Turn the focus on the Lord, because if I'm focused on God's glory, I can't also be focused on my own. Second, James 1.5. James is a fantastic book, right? A couple weeks ago I said one of my favorite chapters. James is my favorite book in the Bible. Hands down. Love James. Every verse. Love James. James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And I know it says wisdom. I know it does. But the principle, I believe, translates. If any of you lacks, ask God. Because the question is, do I really think God won't grow a servant's heart in me if I genuinely ask him for it? If I truly submit myself to the Lord and say, Lord, teach me to be a servant. God, teach me to abide in humility. Do I really think God won't give it to me? He's promised to lead me in the right paths. And if we're called to be hum humble, the lesson in James is clear. Take it to God. 
Because I'm tempted in this, right? I see areas in my life that I'm lacking. I see weaknesses in my life. And there's that temptation to respond, oh, I don't want God to know about that. Like he doesn't already. So I have to train myself to take it to God. When I come across weakness, when I come across fault, when I come across error and sin in my life, my first reaction must be, take it to God. Come before His throne and say, Lord, grow this in me. You've given me a new heart. You've said I'm a new creation. So grow this in me. Teach me to be a servant every day of my life. Give me humility. I think a very practical lesson is take it to God. We also see this to go back to Romans. Romans 12, verses 1 through 3. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies to God. This is worship. Surrender to God. This is worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what's the idea in verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world. I find it highly fascinating that immediately following this, we see this verse in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He says, don't be conformed by this world. Keep your ego in check. I mean, is it... That's got to be fascinating to at least one other person that the first thought following don't be conformed by this world is keep your ego in check. I think that says a lot. And I think when you look at the world around us, yeah, it's trying to convince us that I'm the big deal. That I'm the center of the universe. Abandon your marriage because you're not happy. Give less at your job because they don't respect you as an employee. Why should you help your neighbors? You've got plenty on your own plate. You're too busy to serve. This world is trying to convince us that it's about us. Paul says, don't be conformed by this world. Keep your ego in check. So honest self-evaluation. And this is tough. This is. Honest self-evaluation is admittedly very hard. Because we look at ourselves through rose-tinted glasses. Right? When I do something... I take into account my thoughts and what else is going on in my life, the stresses that weigh on me. I take into account what I want, right? Well, I cut that person off for these reasons. I, I saw that person struggling, but I didn't help them for these reasons. And those are pretty good reasons, right? So when I look at myself, I take into account everything. When I look at you, I just make my judgment based on my perception of your actions. I don't take into consideration your life. I don't take into consideration the weights you're carrying. So honest self-evaluation is hard because we allow it to be colored by our own perspective of who we are. Paul writes, we must be honest in our self-evaluation. Consider ourselves with sober judgment. And I want to throw out one little note here because it, it's equally tragic to me when I see people swing too far in that direction. People look at that verse and they look at other verses that talk about don't think more highly of yourself than they ought. And this breaks my heart when Christians don't realize how beautiful they are in the eyes of God. 
It is devastating to me when in the name of humility, Christians listen to the enemy and they swing too far and they forget that Christ died for them. So when he says, think of yourself with sober judgment, don't think too highly of yourself, but please every day wake up knowing that you are cherished by the Lord. Please wake up knowing every day. I mean, Bible says God delights in you. So yes, think of yourself with sober judgment, but don't allow the enemy to turn that into you have nothing of worth and value to offer this church, to offer this area. Because that's the trap there, and it is equally as dangerous. And then finally, I want to wrap up with this in Philippians. Philippians 2, 3-11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourselves. Look to the interest of others. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm not talking about a mindset that you don't possess. We looked at a couple weeks ago. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do I think I'm better than Jesus? No, of course not. Do my actions reflect that I think I'm better than Jesus? I told you, I'm going to ask some hard questions. I've been asking myself these daily. Do my actions reflect a heart that believes I'm better than Jesus? Because it said, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Am I willing to empty myself to be a servant? When Jesus knelt to wash his disciples' feet, it freaked them out. I love that story. They didn't know how to respond to it, right? And what did Jesus say? He said, no. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Can I say that truthfully about my life? Plug your name in there. That's what I've been doing. I look at my marriage to the most godly woman I know. And I ask myself, did Sam enter this marriage to be served or to serve? Did I come to this marriage to be served or to serve? Do I keep score in my mind? Well, I've done these chores. She's only done these chores. Man, she is way past due. Do I think I'm better than Jesus? Or do I approach my marriage with, I didn't come here to be served. I came here to serve out of love. Now it's easy. I, I really like my coworkers. But at my old job, I had some frustrations. And there were a couple of you in this congregation who I'm very grateful for called me on it. And I'd send a couple of these guys, right? I'd send some of my brothers a text. And there are a couple of you. You texted right back. Oh, interesting. Is that job about you? Phil's not in here, so I can say this. Man, the one day Phil called me on it point blank. I sent Phil a text about all the ways I was insulted. Right? I'm outraged of how they're treating me. And Phil sent me a verse from Proverbs that said, A fool is insulted. A wise man remains humble. And I waited about an hour. 
And then I sent Phil a text that said, thanks, don't ever do that again. <laughs> but I have to ask myself, do I approach my job to be served or to serve? Do I approach the relationships in my life with, hey, what are you going to do for me? Instead of, what can I do for you? Here's the dangerous one. They're all dangerous. Here's one that's really dangerous. And we see it. Do we approach church with the goal of being served or of serving? Do I show up on a Sunday morning with, what are you all going to do for me today? Or do I show up with, what am I going to do for the church today? Why did I come? The Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve. Why have I come? Why am I in the neighborhood I'm in? Why do I have the friendships that I have? Why do I have the position of influence that I do? Why do I have the family relationships that I do? Is it to be served or is it to serve? Am I more concerned with myself or do I count others more significant than myself? I despise the phrase church shopping. I hate it. It makes me so angry. Because we have turned church into a consumer item like a pair of pants. I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to see which one fits me, which one I like best, which one makes me feel best about myself. What if we approach church with this is the body of Christ that I am called to serve, that I am called to give myself towards? God, what church do you want me at? I don't care if the music's not what I like. I don't care if the sanctuary looks different than what I'd like. I don't care if the service goes longer or shorter than I'd like. What church do you want me at, God? How can I serve this church? I've been prepping a series, looking forward to give you guys a sneak preview, right? Like a movie theater, we'll give you a preview of a couple months down the road. We're going to do a series on why church. Why do we do the things we do in church? And recently I've been reading through Psalms over and over again, studying praise. Do you know how many times in Scripture we are called to lift our voices as a congregation and praise God? Do you realize it is a mandate that we are called to gather together and lift our voices in celebration of who the Lord is? And what has our ego done? I don't like this song. They're using drums in this song. They're not using drums in this song. I don't like this band. I'm not much of a singer. Because this time, this time's about me. So I'm going to go church shopping. How dare we make this about us? I look at Scripture and I see a God who everything is about. And I look at my own life and I see an ego that has warped this truth so many times. Your marriage exists to make you happy. Your friendships exist to make you feel fulfilled. Your church exists to make you feel important. Your family exists to make you feel supported and cared for. This world's about you. Trust us. And God brings me to these passages. I have cried so many times this week. I have cried so many times this week realizing how frequently I look at the creator of the universe and I say, mm, today's about me. Maybe it'll get tomorrow. This is about me. I'll give you the rest. It's devastating. 
Because I can't help but wonder what would our lives look like if they were defined by the humility that Christ demonstrated. I can't help but wonder what would our lives look like if they were marked by the humility that Christ demonstrated. What would our church look like if we approached church with the same mindset that Christ did? What would our marriages look like? What would Christian marriages look like if we approached them with, I am here to serve my spouse? What would our friendships look like if I counted every single one of you as more significant than myself? That's what I want. That, oh, that's what I want. I want to be a servant to all. I want to be defined by humility. I want to be defined by surrender and obedience to the point of death. Recognizing that none of this is about me. There's not a single aspect of this life that centers around me. And I can't help but wonder, what will it look like if it's true? What would it look like if this was true of us? So that's my challenge this week. I told you we're ramping up the challenges, right? We started with quiet time. We're ramping up. I believe in a high standard because I don't see anything other than the highest of standard in these words. So the standard in our life must be excellence and nothing else. So my challenge this week is read Romans 12 every day. The whole chapter. I know we just read the first three verses, but read Romans 12 every day this week. And then practically, right, James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Practically this week, seek out ways to serve above and beyond. At work, do a task that's not yours. I don't care. I don't care that it's not in your job title. I was so guilty of this at my last job. I'd grumble. I'd do the task, but it would be bitterly. This isn't what I'm paid for. What a humiliating attitude. Do something that you're not supposed to this week, to love one another. Seek out ways to intentionally serve, to go above and beyond. Whether it's your neighbors, your coworkers, your spouse. Intentionally pursue humility. Intentionally pursue counting others as more significant than yourself. And do it quietly. This isn't a, hey, do you notice I did, hey, hey, I did this for you. No, do it quietly. Do it respectfully. But, but if you're caught, use it to point to God. Because again, none of this is about us. This is about God's glory. So in our humility, in our serving, use it to point to God. And if he comes to you and says, dude, why, that's my job. Why'd you do that? Hey, let me tell you about God. I did it because God loves you. I did it because God tells me to count you as more significant than myself. And I love God enough to take those words seriously. So those are your two challenges this week. That's what's in front of us this week. I want us to be a church of humility. I want it to start with me. It's hard. It's not easy. God doesn't say I'm leading you down the paths of easy. He says I'm going to lead you down the paths of righteousness. So let's let him. Please join me in prayer.
God, I thank you. I thank you that this isn't about me. I can't carry that. I, I don't have that within me to be the center. I thank you that you are the center. I thank you that this is all by you and through you and for your glory. And I ask that you remind me of this daily. Drive me to my knees before your throne. Burden me with a servant's heart, God. Burden us with humility. Let it define us. Let us be an example to the world of your glory in our humility. You are, you are infinitely great. I don't even have the words to describe how great you are. So remind us of that. And let us live lives that are only ever about you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.